0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a daily program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. We're working our way through the two-year version of the RMM Scripture Reading Plan, and I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 15. I mentioned in our last episode that the farewell discourse runs from chapter 14 through 16. Some scholars will add in chapter 17, while others will deal with that separately. However, you slice it, John 15 is smack in the middle of it. This is part of the discourse whereby Jesus prepared his disciples for his eventual departure from this world. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, it will be helpful to know that in the time of Jesus, there was a great golden vine hung over the entrance to the temple. And that is almost certainly the intended imagery behind this teaching. Some scholars even suggest that it may well be that this part of the farewell discourse was given on the road, as it were, as Jesus and the disciples began their walk toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe they passed by this golden vine, and, and Jesus pointed at it while he began to talk. Obviously, we can't know that for sure because John doesn't say that, but it may well be. Certainly, the figure of the vine was very important in Judaism. It was very important in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was frequently described under the figure of a vine. In Isaiah 5, for example, we read about how God planted Israel like a vine. He tended it, he guarded it, he provided for it, but it did not produce what he expected it or what it should have produced. Isaiah 5, 2 says, he expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So when Jesus says, I am the vine, he is saying, I am Israel and I will do what Israel never did. I will give God the crop that he is due. And then he goes on to talk about how that will happen. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, so the first thing we learn is that there will be some people who have a nominal connection to Jesus who will at some point be removed. Well, again, that sounds like what Jesus said in Matthew 13. In that chapter, he talks about angels who at the end of the age will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace then the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their father forever so that is part of how god will get the crop that he wants in the end by weeding that's good to know but also by pruning if there are true branches that are not producing as they should he will prune them that is he will discipline them. He will will cut them a little bit, not to kill them, but to prepare them for greater fruitfulness. That too is part of how God will get the crop that he is due. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So the secret to fruitfulness is abiding in Jesus. Now there's a bit of a play on words in verse 3. The Greek word translated clean sounds like the Greek word translated prune and is in fact related. So the sense is that Jesus prunes his disciples by his word. If you allow yourself to be cut and shaped and cleansed by the word, then you abide and bear fruit. If you resist or reject the word, then you are cut off. He says that in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Abiding is abiding in the word and keeping the commandments. And this leads to joy and fruitfulness. And it shows that we love Jesus just as his obedience and fruitfulness showed his love for the Father. Now, there's a promise here that needs a context before it can be claimed. Jesus says that if we abide in him and in his words, we are going to be powerful in prayer. Colin Cruz says here, such promises are conditional upon prayer being in his name, i.e. for his sake, and in line with his teaching, closed quote. I think that is helpful to remember. Jesus doesn't give us power in prayer so that we will never have to suffer. He gives us power in prayer so that we can do things for his sake, in line with his teaching, and in order that the Father might be glorified in the Son. This is a promise for a purpose and with a context. Verse 12. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This this is a very important paragraph. Notice first, and, and again, that the command to love is focused primarily here on the family of believers. The command is to love one another, the circle of friends who are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is not a command to love all people everywhere, although that is a a good thing to do. Nevertheless, it is important to notice what Jesus actually says. In our day and age, we are conditioned against hearing anything that emphasizes the importance of the church. Loving people generally, we hear that. Calls to social action, We hear that, but calls to love and prioritize the church? We do not hear that unless you hit us over the head with that. And this text comes pretty close to doing that. This is Jesus prioritizing love for one another, love for the circle of the called and committed. These things I command you that you love one another. And you're going to need that love. You're going to need that circle and that circle of friendship. And he tells you why in the next verse. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The more the culture turns against us, the more we need to turn towards one another. We will need each other in the coming years in ways we haven't needed each other in this culture for centuries. Now is the time to rediscover the significance and centrality of the church. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The world has received its word and invitation. Jesus has come. He has operated publicly. His life, teaching, death, and resurrection were recorded faithfully. It is all there. And therefore, now more than ever, they are without excuse, Jesus says. Now, this paragraph also ought to remind us that any attempt to please the world is a fool's errand. Some churches attempt to soften out some of the pointy bits of our gospel presentation so that they can get people to Jesus. But that process, that methodology, overlooks the central fact that Jesus himself is the essential offense of the gospel. Christ on the cross says that God is holy, people are sinners, and that's not going to work in eternity. And that is what offends people about Christianity. It isn't the window dressing, it is the heart and substance of our message. The world hates faithful Christians, not because they dress funny or listen to odd music or fail to make proper use of the smoke machine. No, the world hates Christians because we preach Christ crucified. We preach Jesus, and they don't like what Jesus says about God, about us, and about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. Christ, that's the problem. And it isn't going anywhere. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. The job of the church is not to make believers. That is the job of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus will send and who proceeds from the Father. He will convict and awaken and strengthen and enable men and women, boys and girls, to believe. Our job is just to speak about what we have seen and heard. We're not responsible for the outcome. We pray, we preach, we love one another, we endure hostility, we persevere, we forgive, we show mercy, we love those who hate us, and we bless those who curse us, and the Spirit takes it from there. That's how the church will be gathered. That's how the world will be divided. And that's how God will be glorified in the Son. We know that because this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there, and I hope to see you again tomorrow right here for another episode of Into of the Word. <laughs>